Take your Bible and turn to Jonah chapter 3. Now, if you have been paying attention on Sunday mornings, you will recognize the situation that Jonah finds himself in in, Daniel, or in Jonah chapter 3. Uh, it is a familiar situation to those who have followed the Lord for any length of time. He has been given an instruction which he did not wish to obey. He tried to go away from it. He was not allowed. He has repented and turned around and experienced the salvation of God. And now the instruction comes again. Jonah chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Now, it is a simple verse in the Bible for sure, and yet uh, one with a lot of important sentiment behind it. Um, we read in chapter 1, verse 1, the first time Jonah received this instruction. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And then we see the catastrophe of a few verses that I just want to highlight. So if you pay attention, if you need caught up here with where we're thinking, verse 3 of chapter 1, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And that's what to underline there. He is running from the presence of his God. He is running from the presence of Yahweh. He does not want to be with Yahweh. He does not want Yahweh to be with him. He is running away from that companionship. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare. And he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish again. See how it's emphasized again? From the presence of of Yahweh. Verse 10. Things are bad on the boat. The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this thing? This is after they wake Jonah up. After he's told them who he is. Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the... He, he gets thrown overboard. He is drowning, verse 4 of chapter 2. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. And then here is the turn of the chapter, the turn of the book. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. I have run from your presence. I have tried to get away from you. And now drowning in the sea, I have been cast out of your sight, but... There will be a reunion with you. That's what he's, that, as he's drowning, that's what he's praying. I will look again toward your holy temple. And we covered this last week. He is not talking about Jerusalem. He is talking about the throne room of God. The temple is where God dwelt. I have been cast out of your sight, but I will be where you dwell again. Verse 7 of chapter 2. Now from the belly of the fish, 
When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Again, not Jerusalem. The place where God dwells. Heaven. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you. With a voice of thanksgiving, I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of Yahweh. So the Lord Yahweh spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And then we read, Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah a second time. And what does it say? The same thing it said at the beginning. I don't know if you've had this experience. I have had this experience repeatedly uh, throughout my life. You go, for instance, with a group of youth to a conference, and they spend a day or two there, and they are encouraged in the Word of God, and they hear convicting messages, and they know that they themselves have fled from the presence of the Lord, and they know that they are not walking with the Lord, which is just a euphemism for someone who has fled from the presence of the Lord. They know things are not where they should be and caught up in the sincere reflections of the conference or the event. They return to the Lord in heart and spirit and they say, I'm going to be faithful to God. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to honor God with my life. I'm going to do the right thing. And then what happens? Well, what, what happens, they go home from the conference. All of the obstacles that stood in the way of them walking closely in the presence of the Lord before remain. They've not gone away. All the difficult instructions of the Lord, which they found distasteful before the conference, are reiterated to them again, and now they have a choice, don't they? Because just because we come face to face with a desperation of separation with God, does not mean that on the other side of God's merciful reception of us, the instructions are going to be any different than they were before. Sometimes people get the idea, well, I, I can go to church on Sunday and I can have the worship experience and I can confess my sin or I can uh, present it before God and then I'll go back to work the next day and I don't know what they think. That the calling somehow has changed? That faithfulness is no longer required? No. Being in the presence of God is a precious thing that requires obedience. And in fact, if you are a Christian, you cannot truly be away from the presence of God. You can't, just as Jonah couldn't. He's running from something that is pinned to his soul. And the instruction on the immediate... You know, the, the word of the Lord, it's not an embrace of Jonah. I'm so glad to have you back, Jonah. It's great that you're here. You know, it's... Why don't we take it easy? Let's, let's slowly walk back into this. Let's acknowledge... Maybe we'll go find those sailors from that ship and we'll talk... You know, let's, let's go to Jerusalem and let's offer some sacrifices and let's build you back up and then we'll ease into the things that I need you to do. That's not how it happened. The fish put them on dry land, and the word of the Lord came again. Get up and do what I've told you to do. 
You ever get tired of somebody saying, my bad, or I'm sorry? You ever get tired of that? I don't mean tired in the sense of you're no longer willing to forgive them. I mean tired of it in the sense where it seems to be this like reflex action where they just say it over and over again every time they make the mistake. And you're fine with that. But, but, but the, the larger concern is stop doing it. You understand? But people say sometimes that phrase, my bad, my bad, my bad, because they don't, they want to, they want to immediately eliminate all the consequences of what they've just done. Like I'll say this real fast and, and everybody will be, oh, well, he's acknowledging his failure. So now everything's better now. Well, it's better in the sense that you get a second chance, but go do it right this time. You know, I mean, how many times can you say my bad if, and fail and fail and fail and fail? I mean, forgiveness is always there. That's not what this is about, but the instruction has not changed. Go to Nineveh. You know, the presence of the Lord is an amazing thing. It says here, so Jonah, verse 3, so Jonah arose. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He obeys. Um, now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. It probably took Jonah months, at least weeks, to get there. That's not in the story, the travel there. But when he gets there, it's the kind of city it took three days to walk from one part of the city to the other side. It's a big city. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet... Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I don't know if that's all he said, but that's, that's what we have in summary of what he said. So right away, into the city, and he starts talking. Nineveh would have been a scary place to go and say this kind of thing to. I mean, you're going to a people that aren't your people, a people who don't worship your God, a people renowned for their violence, a people renowned for their hostility towards foreigners, a people that decorate their dwelling places with skulls, that embrace skulls and skeletons as their, uh, their kind of uh, fashion of the day, and in fact, even archaeology has confirmed this, a people who wrote of their own triumphs how they celebrated by skinning their captives and displaying their, their carcasses. This is a bloody, violent people. So I don't know the most difficult environment that you have gone into to share the gospel. Some of you pretty tough. I mean, we have people who've been overseas in missions. But this is at least as bad as anything you could imagine. It's, 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 it's up there. I mean, Jonah had no reason by human power to think he would make it to day two. Because people don't like it when you show up hollering these things. And yet Jonah does it anyway. And you want to know why he does it? Because of the change in circumstance from what we see in the first two chapters. In the first two chapters, he is running from the presence of the Lord. And in this chapter, he is embracing the presence of the Lord. And I, I want to dwell on this for a moment. Make it the first point of this morning, if we need to make it that. Understanding the blessing of the presence of the Lord. Do you realize how many times in the Bible we are supposed to be encouraged by the presence of God? It really is quite overwhelming. Let me read some verses to you, just kind of rapid fire here. To Isaac, the son of Abraham, in Genesis chapter 26, verse 24, it says this, And the Lord Yahweh appeared to him the same night and said, 
I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. Do not fear, for I am with you. To Jacob, Isaac's son. Genesis 28, 15. Behold, I behold am with you. That's how God shows up to reassure Jacob. That's the first thing out of his mouth. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I've spoken to you. Through the prophets to Israel. This is Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. To Israel again, two chapters later. Fear not, I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east, and I will gather you from the west. To the prophet Jeremiah, who is afraid of the king, who does not want to hear what he has to say. God, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8, Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says Yahweh. To Israel, through the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11, I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though I make a full end of all the nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice. Jonah knew a thing about that, didn't he? And I will not let you go altogether unpunished. Presence of the Lord. To the people rebuilding Israel as God fulfills His promises. To Haggai, through Haggai, the prophet in the Old Testament. Haggai 1.13, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, simple message, I am with you says the Lord. It's not just the Old Testament. Paul goes to Corinth in the New Testament, and we think of Paul as this really brave figure because he did what so many of us are, are terrified to do. Now, he went to people that he didn't know in places that were hostile, and, and he shared the simple message of Jesus Christ, sin and salvation. So we think of Paul as a really brave guy. Paul was not brave at Corinth. And I know that because the Lord shows up in Acts chapter 18, verse 10. And he encourages Paul with this. I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you. I have many people in this city. What's that mean? It means he's afraid. He needed to hear it. It's not I am with you, so share the gospel. No, I'm afraid I'm going to be attacked. I'm going to get beat up. I might get killed. And the Lord reassures him, fear not, for I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you. I have many people in this city. And you think, well, what does the Lord say to us? Well, here it is in the Great Commission, which is not at all dissimilar from what Jonah faced. Go ye therefore into all nations, you know, teaching them the things that I've commanded you, you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God's promise to you is His presence. That's His promise. What you've got to decide is if that's enough. 
You realize that? Is the presence of God enough to bolster you to do what He has called you to do? Because you are not promised victory in every scenario. You are not promised, as Paul was in Corinth, that nothing bad will ever happen to you. You're not promised that you're going to have somebody there to hold your hand. Or that you're never going to feel silly or ashamed. So many people want a guarantee of success or at least a route of escape before they're willing to share the gospel that they never do it at all because you're not promised any of those things. Is the promise of God's presence good enough for you? If it's not, your evangelism is hopeless because that's all you have. That's God's promise. It's unchanged for 2,000 years. He promised it to His disciples, and He promises it to us. Here is the author of Hebrews encouraging the church. Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with the things that you have. For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is the author of Hebrews applying the promises of Deuteronomy to you and I. Is God's presence enough? And sadly, in practice at least, it's often not. I know that. You want to know how I know that's true? Because I know how we struggle with prayer. I know how we struggle with prayer. If God's presence were enough, we would be more eager to get to Him and to speak to Him, to commune with Him. And we struggle to do that. Folks, if, if we are forgetting that God is present and wishes to hear from us so that we're not praying, we're certainly not being strengthened by faith in His presence, are we? If you don't have awareness and confidence enough in God's presence to speak to Him, you can't tell me that you are faithfully fulfilling His commission in your life by confidence in His presence. It just doesn't follow. You understand what I'm saying? If we are a people who often get sidetracked and drop the ball or lack the confidence of evangelism or the courage to say what needs to be said, like Paul did, we have to draw on the promise of His presence that's meant to encourage us. Not just us, all of God's people through the Bible. As I just read. This is His encouragement to His people. Fear not, I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Is that enough for you? Will you share the gospel with them? You're called to. Is that enough? The presence of Yahweh God right with you in every event and circumstance. It's an amazing thing to ponder. We see the presence of God here in Jonah 3. Look at verse 5. 
So the people of Nineveh believed Jonah. Is that what it said? Did you read it? So the people of Nineveh believed God. Here's a, maybe a, an encouragement, the presence of God. When you're sharing the gospel with people, you don't have to try to get people to believe you. <laughs> you understand that? When you share the gospel with someone, you're not trying to convince them to believe you. You are calling upon the Spirit of God to do something spiritual behind the scenes of this mouth-to-mouth conversation. There is a spiritually dead person sitting in front of you with no awareness at all as to what's going on. And through your message, the Spirit of God is working in a heart of stone and they will either believe God's Spirit or they will not. It's an amazing thing. This is the same prophet who was running from the presence of the Lord. And now people are repenting because they believe God. Through Jonah, who's speaking? What is the complicated message then of Jonah here that we saw in verse 4? Here it is, the great gospel presentation that it, that it is. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Pretty simple, wouldn't you say? Not complicated. The, the message of salvation is not some challenging thing that we have to present to people with our encyclopedia of definitions. It's not. It's easy. You are a sinner. You stand before God in judgment. God has offered to pay for your sin through what Jesus did on the cross. And if you believe in that Jesus who rose from the grave, He will forgive you and you will be saved. That is not complicated. That is not complicated. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, who wrote this little book, this is one of six different commentaries I'm using right now. Yeah, I have homework each week too. This one's small, so I like this one a lot. It's easy to get through fast. He recounts the message that turned uh, his life around at 15, having grown up in the church and dealing with what he truly believed and knowing that he did not walk in the presence of the Lord. So he's walking down the street one night, and there was a, a man who was walking down the street opposite who saw him. And the man turned to him and said, Son, have you received the salvation of God? And he didn't know what to say, and he walked away. And in that question, he went home, he repented of his sin, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ on one sentence, one question. He said he went back several times, walking that same path in the evening, looking for that man, and never met him again. That man had no idea, not just that someone had been one to the Lord Jesus Christ, but that a great preacher of the gospel throughout Europe had been one to Jesus Christ. No idea. One sentence. Son, have you received the salvation of God? Now, Jonah is standing here preaching this real simple message. And, and I think he was probably saying a little bit more than these, what, 12 words or whatever they are over and over and over again. But it's not a complicated message because he's got to get through the city. And it's a three days journey. He's walking and saying it and walking and saying it. And people are listening. But you know what? They were primed to hear what he had to say. You know how they were primed to hear what he had to say? 
Secular history recounts two events. Number one, there had been tremendous famine and downfall throughout the area of Nineveh at the time, which they would have interpreted as displeasure by the gods. And number two, there had been a fantastic earthquake that had crumpled the walls of the city. This was a troubled people who already understood that they were under some form of judgment. And what they needed was a man of God to come and deliver a very simple message. Forty days. And you're going to face something worse than a famine. And you're going to face something worse than an earthquake. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. They were primed to hear it. Jonah was primed to preach it. Jonah had had his own conversion experience. God had prepared him for this. And now as he delivers this message, it falls upon eager ears. How? Because of the presence of God. This is a miracle because of the presence of God. This is what it says, verse 6. Then word came to the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne. And he laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. This is a people-driven agenda. Verse 5 says, they believe God, the people proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. The king follows Word comes to him of what's happening. He gets up from his throne. He lays aside his robes. He covers himself with burial clothes and ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying... Let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent? And turn away from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. That is a tremendous response. In 2 Corinthians' message. Paul in 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 2, says, We have renounced underhanded ways, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open declaration of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We are not trying to win any debates or arguments. We're not trying to snooker people in. We're not trying to promise what we can't deliver. We are resigned as gospel ministers by the open statement, the open declaration of the truth to commend our message and ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You don't have to convince people that they're sinners. They know it. You got to tell them what happens to sinners. God has created us with an awareness of our own fallenness. It takes a great delusion to convince yourself that you don't deserve any judgment. 
You have to speak the open declaration of the truth. What is that? That Jesus Christ died to save sinners. That there is no other salvation found in any other name given among men. You can't do it yourself. You can't make up for it yourself. It is a simple message. You are a sinner. You deserve judgment. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. This statement is trustworthy and true and worthy of all acceptance. That Jesus Christ died to save sinners. This is a simple message. You don't have to be cunning and crafty and manipulative in your presentation of it. You have to present it. You have to believe in the presence of God with you as you present it. You have to be bolstered by faith that God can do in the recitation of two or three sentences what you could never do in all of your craftiness and words. That God can do walking down the street with a one-sentence question, what you could never conjure up in all the manipulations of, well, if I can just get them here, and I can just get them there, and I can just get this presence in this audience, and I work them into this emotional experience, and then, bam, we'll hit them with the gospel, and they'll be ready to receive it. That's God's work, not your work. What is your work? We have renounced underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunningness or to tamper with God's word. But by the open declaration of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. This is the truth. You are a sinner. You deserve judgment. Jesus Christ died to save you. And he rose from the grave so that you might have eternal life with him. If we believed in the presence of God we would say that simple message with faith that it'll matter. If we won't say such a simple message, we do not believe in the presence of God doing anything among us. Do you understand that? This is the grounds by which Winston Churchill said things like, sorry. This is the grounds by which Charles Spurgeon said things like, show me a Christian who doesn't desire to see those around him saved and I will show you a man who is not a Christian. Do you understand? Why? Because if you don't have the faith to believe in the recitation of the simple message that you say brought salvation into your own life, then you don't have saving faith. Either you believe in the power of the gospel or you don't. But you can't believe in the power of the gospel and never tell it to anybody because you don't believe in the power of the gospel. You cannot have it both ways. And church, we need to wake up first to the presence of the Lord and then hear the word of the Lord and the command that we have received because make no mistake about it, we have received the command. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. They repent because of this open statement of the truth. You don't have to go to class to learn how to share the gospel. The process of evangelism then can be defined, I think, in three steps. Number one, God's word transforms us. 
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible, the Word of God, teaches us. It transforms us. It makes us capable of doing what we could not do before. It's a few verses. It's a simple message. If you can't read it, you can hear it read. You can hear it proclaimed. It's clear. You can't say, oh, I'm just not equipped to do that. You can't say that and get away with it while showing up to Sunday morning and, and, and being a part of Sunday school and listening to God's word. You just can't do it. There is no special secret training that you're lacking. Now, Pastor Steve loves these Bible tracks. And they're good. You know, they lay out some things that you can say. You don't need any Bible tracks. If you want them because they help you, fine. Don't place your confidence in a Bible track. Where does our confidence belong? In the presence of the Lord. You understand that? Not in the presence of this piece of paper that's going to tell me what I have to say. Our confidence belongs in the presence of the Lord. Anyone who has believed the gospel from the word of God can recite the gospel in simple terms. The word of God transforms us. The word of God shapes us. Romans 8, 26 through 28. God shapes us. He works to shape us. Verse 26 of Romans 8. Paul writes, likewise, the spirit. Amen also helps in our weaknesses. Amen. Amen. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. How many of you kneel down to pray and you find yourself praying for a bunch of things and you realize, man, I've just prayed for selfish stuff for the last 15 minutes. I spent five minutes in prayer and I asked for everything my family needed and I needed. I didn't pray for hardly anybody else that I didn't have a vested interest in. I didn't pray for my leaders like I'm commanded to do. I didn't pray for the president and the senators like I'm commanded to do. I didn't pray for the lost people I work with like I'm commanded to do. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit of God, the presence of God Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, things that we cannot ever hear or things that we cannot even say. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Praise God that I have the Spirit of God making intercession with the Lord Jesus on my behalf. And we know all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. 
it was for Jonah's good that he was thrown into the sea and swallowed by a fish. Jonah was transformed by what happened in chapter 2. He was transformed. I don't know what God has done to transform you. God's word equips us and the power of God transforms us. And finally, the third essential part to the process of evangelism. God's word transforms us. God's work shapes us. The third part, and this is the tough one. You have to be willing to die to yourself. Jesus twice quotes, mentions the prophet Jonah in his ministry. I want to read both passages to you. It's in Matthew and Luke, but I'll just read from Matthew's gospel. First in Matthew 12, just a few verses. Then in Matthew 16. If you wonder if Jonah was a historical figure, Jesus said that he was. You can decide whether or not you're going to believe him. Matthew 12, verse 38 says, So some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Jonah, only after his confrontation with death, only after his dying to himself, was profitable for this work. And on the other side, the Gentiles repented. Now here, Matthew 16. Here we go again. The Pharisees and Sadducees came, testing him, and asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather today, because the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. The sign of the prophet Jonah, three days in the belly of a fish, resurrected onto shore and taking the gospel to the Gentile people of Nineveh who repented. Here is what John's gospel, John 12 says about this principle. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be, the presence of God. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. And then this is Jesus' struggle before the crucifixion. Listen to this. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice from heaven came saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. If you want to be of any use in evangelism, you have to be willing to die to yourself. Paul says in Philippians, 
I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, so that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. There is no evangelism without death to yourself. Finally, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we don't despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, the presence of God. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For he who lives... For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. You have to be willing to surrender yourself. Verse 10 of Jonah 3 says, Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that He had said He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. Here's Sinclair Ferguson's poem. This is why I brought the book. There is no gain except by loss. You cannot save but by a cross. The corn of wheat to multiply must fall into the ground and die. Wherever you ripe fields behold, waving to God their sheaves of gold, be sure some corn of wheat has died, some soul has there been crucified, someone has wrestled, wept, and prayed, and fought hell's legions undismayed. There is no evangelism without that dying to yourself. If you are waiting for the time when it will be comfortable for you to go and share the simple gospel with your friends, that is not the principle at work here. Folks, I believe in the power of the gospel. And so I prepare messages to deliver here. And I teach Sunday school. And I show up on Wednesdays and I teach and I teach and I teach and I teach. And it's all for nothing if the word of God that I'm teaching does not transform us into a people who have confidence in the presence of the Lord to deliver a gospel message to the world. It's not all for nothing for me. It's all for nothing in the scope of the mission of the church. If we don't share the gospel, as simple as it is, by faith in His presence, and trust in this message, People will not be saved. I believe people will be saved. I believe it. Would not be here if I didn't. But the answer is not to get the pastor to go and talk to them. 
I will desire is not to get them to come to church. I will do that, and you can do that, but it is a simple message that you have been given the responsibility to share. It takes faith. So how much do we believe in the presence of God in our lives? How much do we believe in it? I hope we do. I hope we wake up to it. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, even now, if someone is here and they know that they're a sinner condemned before you, the simple message of salvation that's been shared is more than enough. That you've demonstrated your love for them by coming in the form of a man and your son Jesus, being willing to die to pay for their sin. That you rose from the grave to celebrate the victory of life over death and sin. That the reception of this salvation is theirs if they'll just believe you, trust you, call upon your name. This is not hard. Father, I pray that you'll wake us up to your presence. I thank you for the way that you've acted as a hedge around us and protected us. Thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your work in our lives, transforming us. Let it be to some great purpose. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.